Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Well, good morning. I am David Jablons from UCSF in beautiful San Francisco, and um, hopefully you can hear me. And today I'm uh, going to introduce our topic on CTSNet Live. We're going to talk today about improving survival in early stage non-small cell lung cancer by incorporating a 14-gene molecular risk diagnostic that our laboratory was instrumental in developing. Um, again, good morning to all of you joining. Uh, good evening, if any of you are joining from Europe. Um, I'm David Jablons. <clears throat> Today we're going to talk about improving survival in early stage non-small cell non-squamous lung cancer. Uh, by incorporating a molecular 14-gene assay. Uh, we are very lucky today to have uh, esteemed guests and colleagues from UCSF, Dr. Colin Blakely in medical oncology, uh, who has been a pioneer in developing this technology with us, Dr. Melissa Coleman in the division and section of thoracic surgery here at UCSF, and of course, Dr. Gavin Woodard, who recently uh, has gone to New Haven, my old stomping grounds and alma mater, to uh, enlighten the East Coast with uh, modern day technology uh, for managing early stage lung cancer. So uh, without further ado, I'm gonna pass the torch over to the good Dr. Woodard, who is going to go through a nice didactic introduction to explain to all exactly what this technology is all about, and then to demonstrate uh, by way of case demonstrations at the end, uh, how this can really make a difference uh, in tens of thousands of uh, lives in this country and hundreds of thousands of lives of those patients suffering from early stage lung cancer around the world. Dr. Woodard, please. Thank you, Dr. Jablons, for that great introduction. Today, we're going to be talking about the important topic of how to appropriately select early stage lung cancer patients for adjuvant chemotherapy using a 14-gene molecular risk prognostic assay. These are our disclosures. Early stage lung cancer remains a very deadly disease. Over 40,000 patients are diagnosed with early stage non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer in the US each year. A lot of these patients, many of them will recur after surgical resection, though the vast majority will be cured with a surgical resection alone. And we need better tools to predict who is likely to recur after their surgical resection. The eighth edition of the staging criteria gave us new benchmarks for five-year overall survival in early stage disease. However, when we take the eighth edition staging criteria and validate it in the American population with the National Cancer Center database, we see that five-year overall survival for this group remains very poor with only 74% five-year survival in the earliest stage patients. These recurrences that occur after surgery in early stage disease often occur within the first year after surgery. And we see these recurrences 
occurring distally, indicating that they're likely due to the presence of micrometastatic disease that was undetected at the time of surgery. We underutilized predictive biomarkers in early stage lung cancer. There's a lot of clinical application of these biomarkers and mutations in later stages of disease where they have the least potential to cure or improve long-term survival in patients. And they're very rarely used among our early stage patient population where we see the greatest potential to cure or improve long-term survival. Many of the studies that have been done in early stage non-small cell lung cancer to look at the benefit of adjuvant platinum doublet chemotherapy have not shown a benefit in stage one patients and have mixed results in stage two patients leading to them not being included in guidelines for adjuvant chemotherapy. And so there's still controversial use of adjuvant chemotherapy in early stage patients. Current NCCN guidelines recommend observation only for stage 1A patients, and this is the group where we're seeing only 74% five-year overall survival. And then for stage 1B and 2A patients, they leave the decision up to the treating surgeons or oncologists and give some examples of high-risk features that the physicians could use to determine who to treat. But these are hardly data-driven, and they're just general vague rules, such as tumors greater than four centimeters, vascular invasion, poorly differentiated tumors, visceral pleural involvement, or having had a wedge resection or incomplete nodal staging. These, again, are the NCCN guidelines. And again, they're quite vague for these stage 1B and 2A patients. We need better tools to determine who will benefit from adjuvant therapy. And so that was the reason for the development of this 14-gene assay. This test was developed based on formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded samples, so it's meant to be used in the real world as part of standard pathology. It's a collection of 11 cancer-related target genes and three reference genes. Quantitative PCR is used to determine gene expression levels, and then these gene expression levels go through an algorithm to spit out a risk status for each individual patient, whether they're high risk of recurrent or death from cancer, intermediate risk of cancer-related mortality, or low risk of cancer-related mortality. Like I said, this is meant to be used in the real world. It's for non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer patients stage one to 2A who've undergone a complete surgical resection. They can receive their results within six weeks after surgical resection. And then these results can be used by clinicians to determine if this patient might be a good candidate for adjuvant chemotherapy based on being high risk for recurrence. This assay was initially developed based on a 361 patient cohort from UCSF, and it was subsequently validated in a 433 patient cohort from Kaiser and in over 1,000 patient cohort from the China Clinical Trials Consortium. The validation cohorts, which were done completely after the study, the assay was fully developed and finalized. Um, showed that it was very good at predicting which patients were likely to die following a complete surgical resection. And you can see on the left the overall survival for the entire cohort and lung cancer specific survival in the middle. For the China Clinical Trials Consortium Validation Cohort, 
you can see that the test was able to risk stratify patients based on risk of mortality for stage one, stage two, and stage three. So even within each stage, the test is able to distinguish which patients are highest risk of mortality. The assay has been shown to work in very small node negative tumors as well. This was a subset analysis of tumors less than two centimeters in size from patients who were node negative. And it was very significantly able to distinguish risk of mortality between patients with this, these small tumors. After this retrospective validation data was published, we then proceeded to do a prospective study at UCSF in the real world on our patient population. We have 250 patients now, ranging from stage one to stage 2A, who all underwent surgical resection. After surgery, they were tested with this 14-gene biomarker assay. High and intermediate risk patients were both considered to be a higher risk patient group for disease recurrence, and these patients were offered adjuvant therapy even if it went outside of standard NCCN guidelines. Low-risk patients um, opted for surveillance. Some of our preliminary data from this study, which we published in 2018, uh, demonstrated that molecular high-risk and low-risk patients uh, had differences significant differences in disease-free survival based on their molecular risk status, demonstrating that the assay was accurately working prospectively in a real-world clinical setting. And also interestingly, that using NCCN high-risk criteria did a very poor job at predicting who would have a disease recurrence after surgery. We recently presented this poster at uh, the North America ISLAC conference last month and I'll go through these findings now in greater detail. The prospective data addressed in this poster answers several questions. Again, it demonstrates in a larger patient cohort the prospective prognostic accuracy of this molecular risk study. Uh, we also looked at the ability of this molecular risk stratification to identify high-risk patients who would benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy treatments and we also incorporated EGFR mutation status to see the impact of an EGFR mutation on molecular risk and adjuvant chemotherapy benefit. First of all, addressing the ability of the assay to predict cancer recurrence prospectively in our real world patient population. You can see the Kaplan-Meier curve in blue represents the low risk patient population and the Kaplan-Meier curve in red represents the high risk patients who are not treated with any adjuvant chemotherapy. And we had significant differences in disease-free survival between high and low risk patients in our patient cohort. Again, some of these patients were offered adjuvant chemotherapy, and while it wasn't a randomized study, those who elected to undergo adjuvant chemotherapy had excellent five-year disease-free survival outcomes, similar to those in the low-risk patient population, and these differences were statistically significant. It also was effective within each stage subgroup, so specifically our largest cohort was the stage 1A patient population. And in these patients, the assay did an excellent job first at predicting who was likely to recur from their stage 1A disease. Second, identifying patients who are very low risk for recurring from disease. 
And then also demonstrating that if you were a high risk patient who was treated with adjuvant chemotherapy, we've yet to observe any episode, any instances of disease recurrent in that in disease recurrence in that patient population. You may be familiar with new data that has come out on EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors being used in the adjuvant setting. Recently, the Adura trial was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The Adura trial treated patients with three years of adjuvant osimertinib and EGFR third-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor versus placebo if in EGFR mutant lung cancer. And they observed improved disease-free survival outcomes in stage two and stage 3A patients. We're often asked about the impact of EGFR mutation and the Adura trial on how to use molecular risk results. Um, and I would point out that in the Adura trial, 60% of patients were also treated with adjuvant chemotherapy. The study's main author, Roy Herbst, is a colleague of mine at Yale, and even he says that this study is not meant to replace the use of adjuvant chemotherapy. It is simply meant to supplement it in patients who have an EGFR mutation, and that we still need ways to identify patients who need treatment with adjuvant chemotherapy. In our patient population at UCSF that we were following prospectively with the molecular risk trial, we also had EGFR mutation available um, on 150 of those patients. Of these, 62% were EGFR wild type, and then approximately 35% had an EGFR activating mutation, mainly exon 19 deletions and L858R mutations. The key takeaways from this are that EGFR mutation status did not impact at all molecular risk stratification. Uh, EGFR wild type and EGFR mutant patients who are low risk had very few instances of disease recurrence after surgery, whereas high risk patients had very high um, instances of recurrence. And if you take either an EGFR wild type patient or an EGFR mutant patient and treat them with adjuvant chemotherapy after surgery, if they're high risk, these patients do very well and have had no recurrences to date in our study population. There is an international prospective randomized clinical trial currently enrolling to further validate these results in a patient population, and we look forward to seeing their results. In summary, we need better ways to identify patients who are high risk for recurrence and the molecular assay can provide an additional tool to help identify patients who would benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. I have um, some case presentations and I would open up the floor to my colleagues for discussion at this point. Well, I think that's fantastic, Gavit. Thank you so much. That's uh, covering a lot of ground in a short period of time. And, um, you know, as we say, the, the data really is pretty dramatic. Uh, perhaps we could ask Colin, who I believe is hovering online here, uh, Dr. Blakely, who is our outstanding medical oncologist, um, how his thoughts have changed regarding the utilization of this test from when we began uh, six, seven years ago to, uh, to 2020 now, when uh, at Tumor Board on a weekly basis, we have incorporated this technology as a mainstay of our uh, ability to judge risk of recurrence and, uh, you know, the enthusiasm, for instance, for treating even a 1A completely resected non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer patient. So Colin, um, 
any any insight into that, and then we can go into the cases, perhaps. Sure. Thank you, David. Uh, so yeah, I've been at UCSF treating lung cancer patients for the past uh, six seven years, and was there in the early days of the development of this assay and. And certainly early on, it was a piece of information that we would consider uh, um, uh, making a, a, a treatment decision about adjuvant chemotherapy or not. But I think early, we certainly took more of the pathological features into account as the primary drivers of whether we would actually uh, offer a patient adjuvant chemo, such as, you know, size of tumor greater than four centimeters, a visceral pleural invasion um, grade of the tumor. And I think as we've gotten more data over the years, and as uh, Gavit nicely presented, it's become quite clear that patients with low-risk features uh, on this 12-gene assay, or 14-gene assay, rather, are very unlikely to recur um, with the stage 1A or stage uh, 1B cancer. And so frequently, I will not be offering these patients chemotherapy. In contrast, now we're seeing that patients with intermediate or high-risk features are much more likely to recur and we have um, typically recommended in these patients to receive adjuvant chemotherapy, somewhat regardless of what we see on the pathological features, even if it's a low grade um, or intermediate grade on pathology, um, if the gene assay comes back as high risk, these would be patients that we would want to offer chemotherapy to. That's, that's great. Um, Colin, what was your perspective when you were talking to patients, for instance, you know, here's, here's a patient who had an incidentally found one and a half centimeter, perhaps, you know, mixed ground glass, semi-solid lesion, gets this completely resected, nodes are negative, or have no evidence of adenopathy, and it's a predominant ground glass lesion, and they, and was found incidentally, let's just say, and they're thinking, my God, thank God, this is, you know, a gift from uh, the heavens, and uh, as best I can tell, based on classic clinical parameters, standard NCCN staging, I am, you know, cured. And, uh, and most people would accept that, although the data that Dr. Woodard showed would say that that's not really the case because, you know, non-small cell adenocarcinomas in particular have a tendency to bad, you know, biology and early micrometastatic disease. Have you found that the, uh, the ability to have a robust and very well validated uh, and uh, quantitative uh, result, you know, such as this uh, gene assay, has helped uh, you in your discussions with patients? Has it changed their ability, you know, their uh, motivation for adjuvant platinum chemotherapy? Because these are all platinum doublet-based uh, treatment regimens, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I would say absolutely. Um, you know, the first thing that patients want to know, uh, you know, after they've had their surgery, we get all the information back is, you know, is this going to come back or not? Um, is there anything else I can do to prevent this from coming back? And, you know, I, I think as Dr. Woodard nicely pointed out in her discussion, the NCCN guidelines are kind of guesses as to what's the most important features and having something that's really molecular based and gives us a quantitative score has been, I would say, tremendously helpful in these discussions with patients you know, if a patient comes back as low risk, I'm much more confident in telling them that, you know, you really don't need chemotherapy in this case. And that, you know, the odds of it coming back are much, much lower. Um, and conversely, if it comes back as high risk, uh, you know, I really definitely recommend the chemotherapy. And it, patients are generally very receptive to that. They, they um, uh, definitely value the, the molecular aspects of the test and know that we're looking 
specifically at genes that are being expressed in, in the tumor, and, and I think they, they find that um, to be helpful. Right, so it, it's really the perfect example, truthfully, the poster child in a way of precision medicine. And it's, it's remarkable in the sense that of all the tools we have for biomarkers and precision medicine, and Colin and other colleagues around the country and in the world who have been active in, in helping advance the field and, and non-small cell lung cancer has, has moved right to the forefront of applying uh, you know, um, mutation data and targeted therapies, et cetera, uh, compared to almost any other cancer. However, uh, with the exception of this technology in the early stage to guide adjuvant you know, therapy of all kinds, but especially even standard cytotoxic therapy, this is really the first demonstration of a precision tool that actually can contribute to cure. Because why, what I find so remarkable even 10 years later after we, we rolled this out is how consistently uh, real the data is and accurate and also it's, been, its ability to not only be prognostic, as Dr. Woodard showed initially, but most importantly, predictive, uh, thus you know, giving it tremendous clinical, clinical utility uh, for to guide clinicians in, in recommending chemotherapy to patients that for finally can lead to not just you know, improved disease-free survival, decreased you know, uh, rate of recurrence, but actual cure. So, uh, it's very, it's very gratifying to see this be further validated than more and more patients come in, kind of like our election, as it were. Uh, it took several years, not several days, but nonetheless. <laughs> uh, Melissa, what do you think? You're, you're uh, new on the faculty. You've seen this technology come through. Uh, you know, you've consumed a fair amount of our Kool-Aid, but, uh, but yeah, as a surgical sp perspective, how do you feel this helps you manage and talk to your patients? Because you're as a surgeon and to any and all the, I would imagine the predominant audience today is our thoracic surgeons. And thank you all for being online early, late, uh, and in Europe, uh, late in the evening. But um, how does this help you as a surgeon uh, with your patients? Thank you, Dr. Jablons. You know, I think it's very helpful in several ways, especially when you're having those first conversations with a patient um, and talking about what surgery, you're considering what you would recommend for them. I find it's very helpful um, when you're talking to patients about having an early stage lung cancer, even when they hear that about the early stage, they're still worried about um, what the outcomes might be and being able to discuss that after their um, operation, that you can provide more information about some of their prognosis and going forward. I think that they find that very comforting. And then for those patients, uh, even with early stage lung cancer, who may not be good candidates for a larger resection or a lobectomy, if you're able to only offer a wedge resection, let's say in that case, to be able to offer another level of assurance after that, that you'll get further information, either even with just a smaller resection and be able to know what their prognosis would be even if you're not offering a lobectomy in that case. And I think that patients have responded really positively to having that additional information when they come for follow-up, knowing that we've not only surgically removed the cancer, but then can tell them even more and have more information to inform how we would treat them going forward. I think, I think that's a brilliant uh, point. Thank you for bringing that up because, you know, as goes breast cancer and breast oncology, so goes the world and so goes thoracic oncology usually a decade later. But nonetheless, you know, uh, our colleagues in the breast world 
uh, were early to adopt, you know, sub-anatomic, whatever, uh, sub-lobar um, uh, or um, uh, lumpectomies for breast cancer. And I think, you know, as we have agonizingly tried and hopefully will soon prove with the randomized trial data to show that probably for these earliest of lesions, these predominant ground glass, 1A lesions, uh, sub-lobar resections with negative margins, segmentectomies, ideally in a perfect world, uh, are comparable, if not superior in some levels, um, to lobectomy. Uh, and given all the comorbidities of you know, the types of patients we typically see these days. So um, I think that your, your point that this assay can make a big difference in reassurance and understanding of the risk of recurrence and or in the sub, but you know, it's not an inconsequential number of patients, 30 or 40% who will be um, high risk for recurrence, intermediate or high risk. We know those patients are at significantly higher chance of harboring micrometastatic disease uh, and would recur within several years. And I would just say that the beauty of this technology also is that it's completely independent of any other clinical you know, co-parameters, uh, histories of smoking, et cetera, whereas other tests along the way that never uh, have actually ultimately been this validated uh, or proved uh, clinical utility have always, you know, depended on other, um, other you know, crutches to help, um, to help perform as well as this test does. But this is a purely uh, molecular-based precision medicine tool based on the intrinsic biology of the tumor. And I think one thing that's also important about this, it was designed to be very practical, as Dr. Woodard mentioned, based on the resected specimen, the technology. Uh, we took many years to refine the, the primers and the technology to perform well on you know, paraffin fixed tissue. But the beauty of that is it's, it's easily applicable around the country, around the world, um, and it's very robust. Um, also, um, you know, this technology, I think, has you know, tremendous, uh, it, it, it's been proven to outperform NCCN standard TNM staging by 30 to 40%. And I think some of the cases we can get to can highlight that. Um, and it's an important adjunct. It's its ability to, to understand the sort of the uh, personality, so to speak, the biology of a patient's tumor, uh, rather than just 17th, 18th century uh, Anton von Leeuwenhoek, H&E staining interpretation, et cetera, undersampling of nodes, undersampling of reviewing of the nodes, et cetera, um, full metastatic workups with PET-CTs at all, is that this technology allows us to know uh, years in advance, really, the chance of a tumor having the mojo, so to speak, to even think about being metastatic. Unlike other technologies uh, that, have, that are evolving that are perhaps uh, going to be important for surveillance, such as CTDNA, et cetera, they may predict a couple of months ahead of when a recurrence will be radiologically apparent, but this technology allows you to know from the get-go when most importantly, and I think this is, you know, Colin, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just a frustrated medical oncologist, as you know, but basically that's when you have the best chance of winning the war, you know, when it's a log-kill ratio experience because you're treating uh, a limited amount of micrometastatic disease versus once you have recurrence, right, then it's a much greater log order more of, of uh, you know, cancer that the chemo has to go up against. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think you really, for lung cancer, non-small cell lung adeno, you, you have one shot at cure typically. Um, and so, you know, having all the information available to make the best decisions to take that shot is really critical. 
Well, great. Well, Gavin, I'm going to pass it back to you. Um, and, and maybe we can get into some illustrative um, case presentations. And, and if there are questions from the audience, please, uh, please uh, raise your chat hand and we'll uh, incorporate them. Or maybe they'll be answered as we go through some of the, the demonstration. And we just have one comment that came through in the Q&A um, referring to lobectomy is currently being considered as a mean, minimum resection for curative intent, uh, you know. Sure. We can talk about that in a moment. Yeah. Okay. So to move forward with our case presentations, these are all real world cases, real patients and real outcomes. Let's see. So our first case is a 35 year old Caucasian never smoker who presented with a three centimeter lung mass. Pre-op workup was pretty unremarkable, uh, node negative based on PET and CT scan and um, brain MRI was clear. She underwent a right upper lobe lobectomy with a complete mediastinal lymph node dissection and ultimately on pathology was found to have a T2A, N0, stage 1B, 3.5 centimeter low grade ASNAR predominant lung adenocarcinoma. NCCN guidelines would not recommend adjuvant chemotherapy for this patient. Uh, she meets none of their high risk criteria but we sent her assay for a molecular risk stratification and she returned as high risk, which based on her assay would recommend that she receive adjuvant chemotherapy. So we're gonna poll the audience now. I'll start the first poll. Would you treat this woman with adjuvant chemotherapy? Let's see, relaunch poll. All right, here you go. Poll should be open and I'll allow uh, 30 seconds or so for patients to be treated. You can all submit your responses. All right, so it looks like people are favoring adjuvant chemotherapy for this patient, 70% in favor of adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, if you would like to submit any additional reasons for why you would have treated her or not, please feel free to put them into the Q&A. Um, I'm gonna- Just like to compliment the CTSnet, uh, you know, uh, people, uh, Catherine on the line, that I think you could help CNN significantly with your uh, abilities to get these rapid responses. It's very impressive, yeah. yeah. Wolf would be pleased, yeah. There's one question in the um, Q&A as to whether or not this patient has a EGFR mutation. Right, exactly. Well, I have intentionally left out mutation status on these patients. I have to say we have the one, the cases I'm presenting are ones for which we all have nice long-term follow-up so I can give you a real outcome on the patient. Um, and for a lot of these patients, we weren't doing mutation testing. For some of them, we do have it, um, but we're, we're leaving that out only because also, even if there were an EGFR mutation, I would ask how that might change your management because uh, the Adura trial actually didn't show a benefit in stage 1B patients. And uh, they also still recommend that people be treated with adjuvant chemotherapy, whether or not you plan to put them on an EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor. But certainly, we do care about mutations in the current era. No, and, and that's a brilliant question. And obviously, the demographics of this patient, uh, young woman, uh, never smoker, uh, and Caucasian, so at least a 30 to 40% chance, most likely, right, Colin, of harboring a probable EGFR mutation. 
if she were Asian, we have a high percentage of Asian patients we treat uh, in the Bay Area. And if, if this had been a you know Asian female, then we would almost say 60, 70% chance. But the, the very important um, discriminator here, and, and I think Gavit, it's, it's brilliant that you added this case to, to lead it off, because based on a duro, let's say presumptively this patient had an EGFR mutation, there would be interest in uh, recommending, you know, three years of osimeridine, right, at significant cost and toxicity, risk for, you know, mutational pressure to small cell cancer recurrence, et cetera. But in reality, uh, what we have known all along is that uh, mutational uh, analysis of tumors has never been prognostic, regardless of the mutation and the top five you can think of. Uh, in almost any series from our country, from Asia, from Europe, et cetera. Whereas this expression-based um, assay um, is, is incredibly reliable at actually predicting risk of recurrence in the intrinsic biology, not just based on one uh, gene expression. And uh, we also know that even on the Dura, as you mentioned, Gavit, the 1B patients, for and that's gonna, that is all based on and that publication on, on um, you know, risk of recurrence, not overall survival. Our data is all, you know, both risk of recurrence and lung cancer specific survival at this point, um, uh, that we would not necessarily expect the EGFR mutation uh, to influence the uh, therapy. And we, uh, Colin, correct me if I'm wrong, would still, uh, based on this, uh, recommend, would you recommend, for instance, if this were EGFR mutant, EGFR-based um, uh, therapy or platinum doublet first and then EGFR therapy, or what would be your thoughts? Yeah, so great points, David and, and Gavit. I, I think it's important to take the ADARA data with the information that it was not a randomized trial of chemo versus osimertinib. It was patients got chemo first if it was indicated, and then they were randomized to receive osimertinib or placebo. So you really should take into account does the patient need chemo? First and foremost, that's the question you have to answer regardless of their EGFR mutation status. And in this case, I think based on the molecular risk stratification, the answer to me is clearly yes, the patient should be offered adjuvant chemotherapy. And then it's the second question whether they should be offered osimertinib or not. To me, a stage 1B, the data is not really as impressive as it is for the stage 2s and stage 3s in the ADORA trial. So I typically would not be recommending adjuvant osimertinib in a case like this if, if it were EGFR positive. Um, you know, 35-year-old woman, obviously you want to do everything you possibly can, can to cure this patient, but I think there's some question as to whether over-treating an EGFR positive cancer, so to speak, with a TKI is actually going to do this patient benefit. You may end up pressuring the tumor, as David mentioned, to transform to small cell or develop other mutations that make it actually more difficult to treat down the road. And we still do not have overall survival data from that trial. So I still think that's somewhat of an open question. Great. Perfect. Well, this is a very enlightened audience. I think our work here is almost done, but um, maybe have it, you can, uh, you know, I'll give you the drum roll and move forward. All right, so this patient was ultimately treated with adjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy. She got four cycles, and we have long-term sur long survival outcomes on her. She's still disease-free 96 months later, so a real success story there. And we have a question on any comment on using <clears throat> gene therapy. 
Um, okay, well, that's a broad enough uh, question. So uh, maybe we could ask the, uh, and Melissa, thank you for fielding these, by the way. I'm too much of a Luddite to even do two things on one laptop. But um, maybe you could just ask for what kind of gene therapy someone might be thinking about here, because there's no gene therapy per se that would come to mind for me that would be ready for prime time or applicable here necessarily. In the meantime, maybe Gavin, let's go to the, the second case. All right. So our next case, case number two, this is a 61-year-old woman. She is a Caucasian former smoker with a 35-pack year history, found incidentally to have a two-centimeter mass. Um, no nodes were concerning on her PET or CT scan, and her brain MRI was negative. She underwent a right upper lobe lobectomy with a mediastinal lymph node dissection, um, had a T1BN0 stage 1A3, 2.2 uh, centimeter intermediate grade asinar predominant lung adenocarcinoma. By NCCN guidelines, she is not someone where chemotherapy would be recommended. Um, her molecular risk status came back as intermediate risk, which we consider to be not low risk, therefore high, and therefore she was recommended to have adjuvant chemotherapy. So I'll re-launch poll number two, which is would you treat this woman with adjuvant chemotherapy? Give a few more seconds for votes to come in. This is a, a controversial one and people are split perfectly down the middle. Oh, now we just have more in favor of uh, no. So here ending the poll. And here we have that more than half of, patient, uh, of clinicians here would not be treating this patient with adjuvant chemotherapy. And, and I think that's very interesting based compared to the first response we saw. Right. Um, maybe more than naysayers are, are finally dialing in, but uh, no. But I think maybe because of the, the consideration of an intermediate grade result versus a high grade risk of recurrence from the uh, molecular risk assay. But keep in mind that um, for all the prospective, uh, you know, treatment, uh, platinum uh, doublet recommended treatments, uh, it was all based on, as Dr. Woodard mentioned, anything but low risk, meaning we know that intermediate has a significant risk of recurrence, although not quite as great as a high risk, because these are stochastic tests. It's not an absolute that if your tumor is high, intermediate, or low, that that is either never going to recur, moderate chance, or high chance of recurrence. It's just overall average chance that compared to a low risk, significantly higher risk if you're intermediate or high. But anyway, this is a split Split decision, as close as it gets, just like the election, right? <laughs> All right. So she did not receive adjuvant chemotherapy in this case, um, which was the more favored response among uh, our group of attendees. Unfortunately, she presented with a biopsy-proven recurrence and bilateral hilar nodes at 21 months postoperatively. So perhaps she is someone who might have benefited from adjuvant chemotherapy. Hard to say in retrospect, but... We wish we would have done more for her at the time. Except I, I think we have enough experience to know now that um, that any of the uh, molecularly classified higher risk patients for recurrence, intermediate and high that is, 
uh, those that were treated with chemotherapy, none of them have recurred over okay. median follow-ups of over four years, I think it is now. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and it's not inconsequential numbers of patients over 350 uh, that we've treated, 250 with you know, three-year median survival. It's a significant, uh, I, I take that uh, to the bank, so to speak. And I think that is, that is really informative that you actually can uh, win the war of uh, occult micrometastatic disease, that there's no way to image circulating CTDNA won't do it, et cetera at the time of resection, when the adjuvant therapy can be most effective for cure, survival and cure, that we've seen no of these treated patients um, recur. And then Colin, have there been complications that you can think of per se uh, in giving young healthy people post-op, you know, three to four cycles of an adju adjuvant platinum doublet? Yeah, so in my experience over the last, you know, 10 years of treating lung cancer patients, um, very rarely see serious complications from platinum doublet chemotherapy. Um, uh, certainly patients are fatigued and they have low blood counts and, and they can be at risk for developing uh, neutropenic fevers and infections and, you know, hospitalizations because of that. But it's very, to my experience, it's quite rare that a patient will have that serious of a complication. Um, with cisplatin chemotherapy, which typically we would recommend in the adjuvant setting, there can be some long-term um, neuropathy and sometimes uh, hearing loss associated with it. And those are discussions we have with the patients about whether um, those uh, uh, side effects are, are um, uh, something the patient would be willing to move forward with the chemotherapy on. Um, but certainly not really any life-threatening side, uh, side effects from this treatment that I've seen in my experience. Well, it's great. And, and I will say it's a testament to your and your colleagues' uh, 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 prowess and ability to administer these drugs, which over you know decades you've learned how to deal with and, and also additional medications to mitigate you know toxicity side effects. So even in patients you know fresh from surgery, obviously more and more patients, the vast majority of our patients have minimally invasive procedures, robotic or VATS, et cetera, and they bounce back pretty quick. So they can actually you know, tolerate three, four cycles of therapy, um, you know, without a significant risk of complication. All right, how about the next um, case, Gavin? Okay, final case that I have prepared for us is um, a 61-year-old woman, another Caucasian never smoker, who presented with a large four centimeter mass. Uh, again, a, an unremarkable preoperative workup, no other sites of disease. She underwent a left lower lobe lobectomy with a complete mediastinal lymph node dissection. Her pathology came back as T2A N0 stage 2A uh, for 4.5 centimeter intermediate grade papillary predominant with some micropapillary patterns in their lung adenocarcinoma. Based on these features, chemotherapy would be recommended for her. Um, she's tumor greater than four centimeters is the main criteria that she meets, um, but I know that we also worry about micropapillary patterns. However, her molecular risk status came back as a low risk, and we know from our data that there's very low risk of recurrence in these patients, and so we would not recommend chemotherapy for her based on uh, her molecular risk status. I'm going to launch our final poll, and um, our audience can weigh in. Would you treat this woman with adjuvant chemotherapy?
few more seconds for people to give their responses. This is our biggest difference in polling responses yet. We'll end this poll. 80% of you um, would be treating with adjuvant therapy for this woman with a large mass um, and some micropapillary patterns. Let's see, share results. There you go. Well, I, I think this is um, very um, appropriate and telling uh, responses. And, and obviously, we all want to do the best by our patients. There would be nothing wrong uh, as far as you know, we have come to understand with treating this patient based, uh, but predominantly the decision I have to believe would be based on a, uh, an actual linear centimeter measurement of a quasi arbitrary cutoff of a four centimeter size tumor, which keep in mind the only data that was generated to justify was a uh, subset analysis, ad hoc subset analysis of the CALGB adjuvant trial that showed a tendency to worse outcomes in patients with tumors that were arbitrarily cut off at four centimeters. Now that you might argue if this patient had a 3.9 centimeter measured tumor, would this uh, polling change dramatically? I, I bet it might, uh, but as we can all acknowledge uh, in the era of um, technology uh, and enlightenment and iPhones and et cetera, that we should be able to do better than just a, a, a millimeter uh, differentiator. So anyway, what happened? So for this patient, um, she did not receive any adjuvant chemotherapy, um, and we have five years of survival data on her, and she currently remains disease-free 64 months later. So hopefully someone who was cured with surgical resection alone. Right. And it does show the beauty of a, a anatomic resection with a uh, radical node dissection uh, for staging quality. Uh, that being said, you know, the real um, test uh, we have uh, a lot of experience with this technology, and we're quite confident in it uh, over a decade, watching it uh, be uh, further refined and developed, although the assay itself has not changed from the inception when it was initially locked down, as any good molecular uh, technology needs to be. It's all done independent, all through CLIA laboratories, et cetera. Um, however, uh, I, do th I do think that uh, we will learn you know, more over time uh, as to how you know, this technology can really help inform how we treat patients in a more enlightened fashion. And again, to look at our, our breast oncology colleagues, they incorporate molecular testing and um, you know, uh, in the form of a similar expression array, whether it's Oncotype DX or Mammoprint or others, um, as a part of the standard workup of their early stage breast cancers. Typically in those instances, the major difference here uh, with this technology versus that whole approach is that is to identify the low risk patients that don't need sort of reflex adjuvant antiestrogens or chemotherapy and save patient toxicity, but don't really impact chance of survival. This on the other hand, as we've demonstrated, and I think Dr. Woodard's data shows uh, more or less beyond a shadow of a doubt that for these at risk patients, intermediate and high risk, that you can actually intervene and show dramatic clinical utility and survival not just recurrence, but survival benefit for these patients. And when you translate that into the impact for this country, we're talking of tens of 15,000 American patients a year whose lives could be saved based on application of this technology, and hundreds of thousands of uh, patients, non-squamous, 
completely resected adenocarcinoma or non-squamous histologies, non-small cell lung cancer around the world. Um, to further add um, um, mo uh, the, the data to this, as you mentioned, uh, Gavin, in, in one of your concluding uh, slides in the talk, there is an ongoing prospective randomized international trial that will actually um, you know, lay any doubts about the application of a molecular uh, uh, diagnostic such as this test to rest in that uh, we will screen 17 to 1800 patients around the country and around the world. We have the uh, intergroup investigators in France and Germany uh, signed, on, signed on and uh, Spain hopefully to follow as well as, as well as other enlightened sites around this country. We're not doing this test currently in Asia because it's very difficult to find early stage lung cancer patients in Asia that don't reflexively uh, in China in particular, get treated with EGFR inhibitors. So we, don't, we know that that would skew our ability to actually uh, control for that. Thank you, Gavit, for, for putting up the slide. And basically the randomization, it's a simple uh, prospective randomized trial. Um, you know, we need 700 patients plus or minus who are molecular intermediate and high, all you know, at risk for recurrence. And they will be uh, randomized uh, uh, straight one-to-one to either be standard of care observed or get four cycles of a platinum doublet. Uh, dealer's choice platinum doublet, depending on the institution. And we'll follow them. We will also follow the low risk patients um, uh, for over uh, four years. The trial has just started to accrue um, and we're excited to uh, enroll this trial within a year and have the result in the next two to three years. We have a question about the role of PDL1 status in these patients. Sure. Well, that's a that's a great question. Uh, you know, there's a lot of interest in applying checkpoint inhibitors and immunotherapy to early stage patients. There is some uh, exciting, you know, uh, tantalizing data from neoadjuvant studies, um, you know, showing uh, pathologic responses of, uh, and in several cases, complete pathologic responses after two cycles of a checkpoint inhibitor, for instance, preoperatively. Uh, I will say that in our experience, uh, operating, especially minimally invasively on patients who have had immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitors can complicate the uh, post-operative course and the, sometimes the challenge, the, uh, the difficulty of resection, however, nonetheless can be done safely. And um, we have not, to specifically answer your question, uh, actually measured um, PDL1 expression, for instance, which we know is, uh, you know, it's helpful, but not a perfect biomarker by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so we have not, we do not have, unfortunately, data to speak to on that. We do have mutational data, as Gavin mentioned, uh, for EGFR and other genes. I think, actually, Colin might even comment, we, we um, based on various uh, NGS platforms that were used over the years, we did look at the, the, the standard uh, molecular, uh, um, you know, uh, mutational uh, markers in tumors, and in, in particular, KRAS mutation, which we saw 25% of the time, roughly, in these early stage patients. And I think, Colin, you had some experience even uh, with treating uh, high-risk KRAS mutant uh, patients uh, tumor. And, and what was your feeling about that? Were you trepidatious about doing it given the standard, you know, lack of response to a platinum doublet in, a, in advanced stage, you know, stage four KRAS mutant tumors? Yeah, certainly uh, through the years, I've had a number of patients with KRAS mutated lung cancer that um, have fit this criteria of, you know, tumor less than four centimeters, typically would not be offering chemotherapy based on NCCN guidelines, but come back intermediate or high risk. And 
in most cases, I have offered chemotherapy and and I've had, uh, you know, anecdotally very good uh, outcomes in these patients. Um, uh, I can think of several cases where there's no evidence of recurrence three, four, five years later, um, and, and no case comes to mind where, where we had a patient um, who had their disease progress after receiving adjuvant chemo in that context. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating. Gavin, maybe in conclusion, I know as a teaser, you have several outstanding publications soon to be submitted, soon to be you know, uh, at prime time. So all of you out there in the uh, ethersphere need to pound on the JTO and other editors to embrace these articles or whomever winds up publishing them. But they're very fascinating. What what was your um, uh, what was your data on um, even in the earliest of GGO? You know, ground glass, no solid component that we resected over the years. Um, can you just give a little teaser about mutational profiling? I'm, I'm you know, did you see KRAS mutation or is that only a bad gene that occurs in you know stage four patients? No, I think, um, uh, as you've mentioned before, we know that mutation, gene mutations, specifically driver mutations, are not prognostic. And so when we looked at a subgroup of patients who just had ground glass or a, a small semi-solid lesion with a you know, sub-centimeter solid component, uh, these patients also had KRAS mutations. They had them at the same frequency that we were observing in our other stage one patients with real solid tumors. Um, and so we, we don't think of KRAS as something that necessarily confers prognosis. Um, it, it's separate just as a driver mutation, um, which is why we like to use our molecular assay to determine who is high risk for recurrence and who might benefit from chemotherapy. And I know the data on our patients who have KRAS mutations and molecular risk and high risk with a KRAS mutation did exceptionally poorly um, but the patients who were treated with adjuvant chemotherapy did well. Fantastic. Well, I think that pretty much does it for time. I would like to thank all of you um, uh, in the center, on the East Coast, in Europe, uh, in the North Pole, wherever that you happen to have an internet signal who are online and paying attention. And thank you so much for your participation. I think this was really uh, informative to, to me and to us. I'd like to thank my uh, esteemed colleagues for their input and for their phenomenal contribution to this technology, uh, Colin and uh, Gavin and Melissa, and my other colleagues who are not on their line, Dr. Kratzman, et cetera, and, and the many uh, people who have come through the laboratory along the way who have helped uh, initially help us uh, go down this path of molecular prognostic and predictive markers for early stage lung cancers. To me, it's very gratifying to say that when you stick to things, you can actually show um, in, uh, with carefully designed trials and data that this can affect uh, and save many lives in our country and worldwide. And I'd like to thank Catherine, Joyce, and Emily Robinson at CTSNet for their fabulous technology assistance and uh, for, for hounding us busy surgeons. And, uh, and I think it seems, unless I'm mistaken, we actually made this happen. Uh, in more or less right on time. So uh, unless there are any burning chat questions, Melissa, I think we can. Um, yeah, there were just uh, two more questions about ALK status in young women and the role of adjuvant treatment with uh, Dervalumab. Okay, well, that's a great question. Gavit, do we have any data on that? Alistair, it's unfortunately it's infrequent, and so our numbers are really small to make any sort of conclusion. So I would say it's it's premature for us to comment. We just don't have lots of patients who fit into that category to make any conclusions from. 
Okay, and finally, the last word is always, Colin, to our medical oncologists. Um, you know, you get the hard question. So, for instance, <laughs> if you if you had a patient with an ALK, uh, you know, mutation in the tumor, which again we didn't really have a lot of data on, would that change your yeah. your feelings about platinum versus a targeted therapy? And then, since I'm, I'm going to we'll sign off after this, to uh, the question with Dervalumab, is there any role in these yeah. earliest of stage patients? Not any data that I can think of, uh, although we did approach right. to do the trial, but they chose not to participate. Yeah, in terms of ALK, I would treat it similar, treat a patient with ALK positive disease similar to how I would treat an EGFR positive patient. Um, first and foremost, answer the question whether they need chemotherapy. And then I think, you know, some, I know some um, physicians are extrapolating from the ADORA data and trying to apply adjuvant electinib or other ALK inhibitors. Um, I'm not quite at that point yet. I would like to see some data before um, actually making that leap. But uh, to me, if they had uh, high risk features, you know, from a histopathologic standpoint, as well as from the molecular stratification standpoint, I'd certainly be offering them chemotherapy. And then in terms of the adjuvant dervalumab treatment, you know, certainly we do this for patients um, who have been treated with chemotherapy and radiation for advanced stage 3A or stage 3B disease that is surgically unresectable based on the randomized clinical trial data showing an overall survival benefit. As David, you said, I'm not aware of any data showing a survival benefit in the early stage setting, although I know that there are many different companies and groups looking at that question. Great. Well, thank you again, and thank all of you out there for listening and participating. Uh, be safe, continue doing your life-saving work, and we look forward to seeing you at some of the virtual ISLAC meetings coming up. Again, Gavit, thank you very much for your presentation today, and to Joyce and Emily, thank you very much. Uh, Catherine, that is, and Emily, thank you very much for your help. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.